following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. All right. Everybody looking up here for a second. Everybody looking up here. Whatever else you're doing, just set it aside. I hope you understand that in this moment, God wants your attention. Whatever else you could think to do in this moment, I hope you understand that God wants your attention, undivided. He doesn't want you looking at your smartphone, aside from ensuring that it's your Bible on there. He doesn't want you checking your Facebook status or looking through Twitter or texting anyone. He wants your attention. He doesn't want your thoughts meandering, wandering here and there. He, he doesn't want you thinking about anyone else around you. He wants your undivided, focused attention. That's all he wants. And if you'll give it to him, if you'll give it to God the Father in this moment, what you'll see or who you'll see is Jesus Christ. And in today's text, uh, some people did exactly that. They gave their attention To the one who was called Jesus, they didn't exactly know who he was, but they gave their attention to him. And in the text that we're going to look at today, some words were used to describe their reactions to that. They were, one word, amazed. They were astonished. It said that as he grew up in front of them, as they were walking, uh, watching him walk through life, that uh, their favor was on him. In other words, they gave their special attention to this certain young man as he was growing up. They gave their attention to him. They were captivated by him. I hope we would all be captivated by him. I hope that those words, amazed by and astonished by and paying special attention to, I would hope that would be true for all of us today. And that's what we're going to see in the text. Today's text, in fact, uh, helps us answer this question. Why is Jesus so captivating? So let's turn our attention to the text. We're in Luke's gospel, of course, chapter 2. And... um, Yeah, you can look down now. Uh, Verse 41 through to the end of chapter 2. This is the word of God. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son... Why have you treated us so? Build your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would bring a a stillness to this place by your spirit. I pray that you would help us all to be focused, undistracted. Father, so that we can all see Jesus. I pray, God, that we would all be amazed. We would all be astonished at who he is. And God, beyond simple amazement, our lives would be altered today. Altered to be made more in his image. And these things we pray for your glory and in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, why is Jesus so captivating? It starts with this admission, his ordinariness grips me. His ordinariness grips me. His upbringing was pretty unremarkable and pretty ordinary. There was no doubt um, intentionality behind this, God's intention behind it, keeping him uh, tucked away in this village called Nazareth uh, really for 30 years until his public ministry began. What had uh, started out with the flourish, let's call it a flourish, of angel appearances and the shepherds showing up at the birth of Christ and then some months, maybe a year or so later, uh, the Magi coming uh, to visit him. And you've got to understand that when the Magi traveled, uh, it was an entourage that would rival that of any head of state. It would have been majestic and awesome and noticed in Jerusalem and very much noticed in the smaller village of Bethlehem when they showed up. Uh, His entrance into the world had this certain flourish to it. And then after that, obscurity. Uh, Raised by uh, a man who worked in a blue-collar job living in this a backwater village in an obscure and remote corner of the Roman Empire. If the, if the FBI were designing a certain plan for witness protection, this would serve the purpose. And no one was going to figure out that the Messiah of the world, the King of Israel, the Creator of all things, was living In this little town being raised as the son of a carpenter. There's literally nothing noteworthy about his life. There's not even enough material here for a reality show. And we know how little material is required for one. (laughs) He just was being raised as a normal boy. And we get an indication of that in verses 41 through 45. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. It would seem to us that that Mary and Joseph were the ones that went. This was a requirement on the people of Israel that they would make at least one pilgrimage. It seems like from the text, his parents would have gone annually. And then in verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And the whole deal here is this, that at 13... A young Jewish boy would, quote-unquote, come of age. Later tradition would call this the bar mitzvah, but at this time, not they weren't using this term, but at 13, a young boy became responsible for the Mosaic Law. 
became responsible for his own actions. If you are 13 and above in this room, uh, you're accountable according to this tradition. So then at 12 years old, just before he became accountable, you can see Mary and Joseph just kind of saying, hey, we should take Jesus with us this year. So he becomes a little bit more um, aware of what the Passover is about and what Jerusalem is like and, and what the, the whole way that we worship our God, how that all goes down. Let's kind of get him ready for age 13 when he's going to be responsible for all of this. And so they went up according to the custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning... The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. You say, well, that's kind of negligent. How many parents here, confession time, how many parents here, you've lost track of your child at some point? Just, you had no idea where they were. How many people got like a mile or two down the road before you realized it? All right. Langford, you can be excused. You have seven. I mean, I mean, that's hard to keep track of. I understand. Um, and so that's what's going on here. Nothing sinister behind it. It just happens sometimes. Um, his parents didn't know it, verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. It's a little more than a day down the road. But you ought to understand, just so, we have understand, so we're not laying too much at Mary and Joseph's feet, they would have traveled as almost an entire village together for safety along the way. The route they would have had to take would have uh, had bandits along the way and, and people that would take advantage of them. And so they traveled in very large groups. And there would have been lots of family members and there uh, is even indications that men and women would have traveled separately. And you can see this whole th thing going down when Mary and Joseph got together when they camped for the first night saying, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. Correct? I know that never happens in any homes here at Harvest in any of our families. No, we always have it perfectly in sync. But um, you can see Mary and Joseph kind of having that little conversation the first night. And then the panic setting in. Someone suggested to me just before the service. Can you imagine this? What's Joseph paying, praying that night? Hey, Lord, we lost the Savior. <laughs> you know, like, would you want to pray that prayer? You know, the son you entrusted to us and... Um, that would have been awkward. Um, so the text goes on to say, um, uh, they uh, began to search for him, supposing him to be in their group. They went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. The whole idea is uh, day out, uh, day back. And then we're going to see that on the third day um, of searching for him, that they actually found him. And so we just get a glimpse from this. I'm just saying uh, all these reading through these verses say that you get a sense of how normal family life was for them. They're just raising him, going to synagogue, learning the law, taking him on his 12th, in his 12th year to Jerusalem, just the normal thing they always did. Mom and dad not quite maybe in sync, uh, losing their child along the way. These are normal, normal, normal family things. There's nothing going on here. They're searching for him as if everything was normal. And um, that's really comforting to me as a dad trying to raise my kids, not needing really to get it so perfect and just resting in the fact that Jesus had this very normal upbringing. There's no sense in the text of negligence on Mary and Joseph's part. There's no sense in the text of defiance, of course. No sense of defiance on Jesus' part. It's just normal family living. And the ordinariness of that. Just how regular it is. I mean, that just, to me, is something that's captivating. When you realize who he is. 
This isn't just any other 12-year-old. This is the Lord of the universe in human flesh. This is the very Son of God. And I understand, I think about that, I just go, that's captivating. When I think about how God is playing this whole thing out, how intentional He is about it, how patient He is to roll this all out in a way that makes sense, the preparation behind it, His identification with us, the the painstaking moves that God is making to ensure that His Son lives in human flesh so that you and I can so closely identify with Him. I mean, don't miss that. That's the important part here. Is that we have a Savior we can identify with. We studied the book of Hebrews a few years ago. Check out this verse up on the screen. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. 30 years before his public ministry. Minute by minute, day after day, month over month, year by year, three decades long of facing temptation, of living as a human being, of of feeling what we feel. He lived in such a way, to use the Hebrew's word, to sympathize with us, to identify with us, to to experience life the way we experience it. He, He gets it. He's not just the creator that created us, but doesn't know what it's like to be us. He knows us. He knows you. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows the temptations you face. There's no addiction that you're struggling with. There's no addiction uh, no, that, that, that is consuming your life that he doesn't know about. There's no temptation uh, toward wealth that he isn't experienced with. There's no relational struggle that you're going through that he hasn't also felt himself. There's no pain you can feel. There's no hurt that's so deep that he doesn't already know all about it. I think that's awesome. I think that's I think that's compelling. I think that draws me toward him. I I think that that's captivating in every way because there is no god like our god who does this. That's why Jesus is so captivating. What about this? His insightfulness amazes me. I mean, it amazed everyone who heard him. In fact, later in the gospel, we're going to find out that even his enemies, even those who hated him and disagreed with him, still were in awe and amazed by what he taught them. They they didn't abide by it. They eventually crucified him for it. But they were still pretty amazed by it. You shouldn't really be in a place where whether you agree with Jesus or disagree with him, and I uh, would not want to make the assumption that everybody in this room agrees with Jesus. But whether you agree with him or disagree with him, whether you 
follow him or don't follow him. If you reject him flat out or you fully embrace him, it shouldn't matter. You should still be pretty amazed by him. The insights that he teaches us, if you would really listen, if you would pay attention, if you would learn from him, you would see, whether you agree or not, it's amazing stuff. Verse 46, the account continues after three days, so this is on the third day. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, notice, were, what's the word? Amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's very interesting. The normal procedure here is to ask questions. And initially it says that he's asking the questions, which would be what would happen in this kind of a setting. The students would get together. They would learn to ask the right questions. And the teachers, would assemble, the teachers who were assembled would then answer those. It says that he was asking questions, but then it says at the end that he was also answering them. So this is a little unique. In this case, he must have so amazed those to whom he was asking the questions and after they answered the questions, he must have said, well, have you thought about this? Or how about this way of looking at it? Or here's what that really means. And he turned the whole thing, the whole process kind of on its head and they were amazed by this. That's not normal in any way. For a 12-year-old to have such knowledge. You could say on the one case, well, he must be some kind of prodigy. And every once in a while, a certain prodigy uh, will come along. Some astounding 12-year-old who does something that's unlike what normal 12-year-olds are like. But we know it's not because he was a prodigy. They're amazed because they're sitting down with their God. They don't get that yet, but that's the reason. It amazed those who sat with him that day, who were listening to him. And you know, I mean, it's so simple, but it would amaze anybody who would sit at his feet and would listen to him teach. We sit at his feet today by by reading the word of God for ourselves. I hope, that, I hope that you don't just come here on Sundays expecting me to feed you. I hope that this isn't the only time that you're seeking to be fed. Because if that's the case, then I would say you have a somewhat less than amazing view of the word of God. I would hope that you're self-feeding And then when we come together here, it's just exciting to do it together. We all hear the same message. We go from here. We get into our small groups. We talk about it again. We discuss it out. We look for applications. I mean, I would hope that you're amazed by it, top to bottom, that it's playing out in your life. That's how you sit at his feet, hearing preaching, hearing teaching, Uh, reading it for yourself, studying it out, being with your small group, just letting the Word of God saturate your life. It seems fewer and fewer are willing to do that. And there's no doubt that we live in a day, unlike any other time in history, where there is not only an apathy toward the Word of God, but 
outright contempt. Never has there been a time in history like there is now. People are like, the Bible, really? The Bible? Do you really believe that stuff? Or just flat out hatred for it. Don't bring the Bible out. I don't want to hear that stuff. And so we think about that and this whole idea of how we can get people who don't believe in Jesus to see that the Word of God is really amazing. How can we get them to see that? I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't involve advertising or media campaigns or billboards. To a large extent, it doesn't really come if you just stand out on a street corner with a stack of New Testaments and hand them out to people who don't really want it in the first place. I'm not saying that that couldn't be effective, but that's not the best way. I mean, if you really want the people around you who currently are not fired up about the Word of God to get fired up about it, to be amazed by Jesus Christ, uh, to to really want to press in and hear what God's Word says, it's going to start with gentle rebuke. Gentle rebuke. It's going to start with you being excited about it. We can hardly expect people around us to be fired up about the word, to be amazed by it. If we're not amazed by it, does that make sense? That math seems pretty easy, don't you think? And, and, and this church, so many of you are so excited about the word of God and passionate about it and you are pressing in to learn it. I mean, it starts with us. It has to start with us. The people around us aren't going to be amazed by it unless we are. And one of the things I love so much and what attracted me to Harvest in the first place, I wasn't in a Harvest church. There was only one Harvest church when I first heard about all of this. But some uh, 13 years ago, um, I got attracted to this uh, uh, through the ministry of Pastor James McDonald and listening to his preaching. And there's hardly anybody I know who is more passionate about the Word of God than Pastor James. And every once in a while in his church, they have this little thing that they do. It's a creed, really, uh, that uh, he wrote for his church. And over the last 10 years or so, they have done this every uh, once in a while to really reinforce what they believe about the word. I thought it'd be helpful for us to hear it, but not just to hear it, to actually say this creed uh, together. And this is going to help us, I think, be amazed by the word of God, to be captivated by Jesus Christ. So let's, um, let's give our attention to the screen then. Uh, this is called, This is My Bible, and I'm going to get you to just to read it out right with me. In fact, if you have the Word of God in your hand right now, just raise that up in the air as you say this. Uh, raise your Word up, even if it's uh, a smartphone or a tablet. Raise it up. Let's raise it up. And just, let's just say this together, all right? Uh, this is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I am going where it says I will go. God's word is milk for my soul. God's word is seed for my faith. God's word is light for my path. God's word is power for my victory. God's word is freedom for my life. When I read God's word, it brings me joy. When I study God's word, it keeps me from shame. When I memorize God's word, it purifies my heart. 
When I quote God's word, it defeats my enemies. When I meditate on God's word, it brings me success. When I abide in God's word, it gives me confidence. I am a Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. And when you look at all of that, and there's so much there, we could spend weeks just going through the statement that we just made together. We'll make that available to you on our website. But when you look at all of that, when you see what the Bible says to us, when you see the confidence that it provides us, the truth that it passes on to us, all that it teaches us, would you agree? It's amazing. The insights of Jesus Christ are amazing. Well, Jesus is also captivating because... Check this one out now. His otherness stuns me. His otherness stuns me. Let's deal with each of those key words there, otherness and stuns. How many people believe, I love doing this once in a while, a little trivia time. How many people believe that otherness is actually a word? Raise your hand if you think that's actually a word. Okay, about six or seven or eight of you. You know how I set you up on these things. Why do you always, always, always take the bait? How many of you think it is not a word? Okay, once again, how many of you did not vote? (laughs) Are you not playing the game? Um, Actual word, congratulations to the eight that voted for that. Shame on those who wouldn't take a chance. Um, it is a word. I know you don't think so, but here's the definition. The quality or condition of being other. <laughs> See, you think this stuff's complicated. It's not really. Um, the quality or condition of being other or different, unalike or dissimilar, obviously. In a theological sense, though, we would use this word to describe our God. He is other or he is transcendent. You've heard that word before. He's other. He's not us. He's, he's completely different than us. He's transcendent. And his otherness, now the second word here, it stuns me. This isn't a word we use a lot today, but when I was a kid, if one of our buddies was acting like an idiot, we just called him, we said he was, he was stunned. Dude, are you stunned? Right? And, and um, I probably got called that a few times. Uh, stunned as in dazed, rendered senseless, overwhelmed, or stupefied. I just wanted to say stupefied, so I threw that one on there. Um, But that's what it means to be stunned, and really, the otherness of God leaves us in this stunned, rendered, almost senseless state. Uh, That's how awesome He is. We already talked about the ordinariness of Jesus Christ. And now we're talking about the otherness of Jesus Christ. And in those two words that you just look at at face value and go, I think those two things sound like they're in conflict with each other. But that's the paradox of Jesus Christ. He is fully God, fully other, and fully man, fully ordinary. He's both of these things. And we can't fully reconcile it in our own minds how he is both of these things at the same time. He's completely human, living this this completely ordinary life in the city of Nazareth. He comes down to Jerusalem. He's just doing what everyone else does. He's just part of the crowd. 
And then he opens his mouth as a 12-year-old and he begins to speak. And in that moment, you get a sense, like everyone else around him did, this is no ordinary kid. Where did you say he comes from? Who exactly is he? Because he's not from around here. And by around here, I mean this planet. I mean, even at age 12, long before his public ministry, he begins, he, he can't help it. He just begins to speak in this context, in the temple with these teachers there. And, and it's, as if, it's as if the veil is being pulled back just a little bit. And the glory of God shines in that moment. And you get a glimpse of his very divinity. We already saw that the teachers were amazed in verse 47. Verse 48 then goes on here. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Why do you think they were astonished? I mean, what, what was the deal here? Why were they so astonished in this very moment? I think it's as simple as this. That they too saw a glimpse of his divinity. And, and for 12 years you have to be thinking. They were wondering how this whole thing was going to play out. They didn't get any more information than what we have recorded in the text about their son. They just knew that they were going to have this miraculous baby. who was going to be the Messiah. But they didn't know how that was all going to play out. And now they see him somehow. God peels back the veil so that they can see in this moment. Their son's going to teach Israel. He's going to teach the world. He's going to say some things that are amazing. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said, Why are you looking for me? The text is actually arranged there in such a way that it, it could say, why, why weren't you looking for me right here? Why would you look anywhere else? Why didn't you just come right back here? Is really what he's probably saying to them here. I mean, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? If they were astonished already, it's at this point that they become completely baffled. Because in their minds, who is Jesus' father? Joseph is. And we, as good New Testament Christ followers, we have no trouble understanding God to be our Father because we have the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, because he referred to God as his Father so readily. We refer to God as our Father. We understand that relationship. We see God in that way. But please understand that Joseph and Mary didn't. That the Old Testament saint, if you look back on it in your own study of the Old Testament, you're going to see that the concept of God as Father is used maybe two times in a sense of a metaphor of God being his Father. But a Jewish person would never have thought to refer to God as their Father. Okay, so, so Mary and Joseph get a pass on the confusion, correct? Okay, we, we understand why this whole thing's a bit confusing to them why they're so astonished at what they've witnessed and what he's saying it says in the text they didn't understand what he was saying to them they were overwhelmed at getting this glimpse into the future that was in store for their son 
They had had a full decade plus of normalcy with Jesus. Nothing supernatural about his upbringing. Nothing noteworthy. And this incident revealed supernatural knowledge to them. And the whole thing, and just in that moment, it all just crashed in on their world. You see, what we see in Joseph and Mary, their struggle to understand who their son was and what his purpose was going to be in this life, what we see in them is such a great picture of what we see in ourselves. I mean, there should be no one coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, no one seeking God, who doesn't have to significantly wrestle that down. You have to. It shouldn't be easy. It's not, it's not, it's not just a, I raised my hand in a service, I walked forward, I, I prayed the right prayer. It, it, it's not as simple as that. You can certainly have that as a part of your response towards the Lord, but there's a wrestling match uh, that's going on here. There's a, there's a war going on inside of our own heart concerning Jesus Christ. I mean, if we really get it, We'll wrestle with it. If you think it's just easy to be a Christ follower, easy to be a Christian, then somewhere along the line, the wires got crossed. Something didn't, didn't work out perfectly. I mean, we're called upon to take up our cross and follow him. We're called to lay down our lives. We're called to, to, to crucify self. The battle that rages inside of us is our own pride. I want to live life my way. And Jesus breaks into that and says, no, 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 no. You want to follow me? Self dies. You come to the end of yourself. And you follow me. If you haven't wrestled with who Jesus is at some level, at some point in your journey... And I'm concerned that you haven't fully appreciated what it means to be a Christ follower. He's not like us. And his otherness ought to leave all of us a bit stunned. More than a bit in awe of him. Finally this. His submissiveness draws me. When you're the creator of all things, it's one thing to make the decision to say, I'm going to take on human flesh and come and live amongst my creation. It's one thing to say you're going to come and live among them. It's entirely a different thing to say, I'm now going to submit to their authority. The the word submit in the original language literally means to put myself under. And so if I submit myself to someone, I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering my autonomy to their authority. Now, the text tells us here that he willingly submitted himself to his parents. Check out verses 51 and 52. And he went down with them. When he says he went down with them, they just came down off the mountain that Jerusalem is on, down, and they went to Nazareth. Notice that it says here, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And man, his submissiveness brought him the favor of God and the favor of man. Jesus knew that in order to accomplish the plan that he had for this world, that he would need to submit himself to the authorities of this world. He went down with them. He was submissive to them. He willingly, intentionally placed himself under the loving authority of his parents. Now, would you agree that it's not hard to be submissive to people who love you? Would you agree with that? Or is it just hard to be submissive, period? (laughs) Yeah, probably both. But slightly easier to get under people who love you, who care for you, who have your best interests at stake. For Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator, to, to submit himself to his parents was not the hardest part. But years later, he would willingly, intentionally place himself under the authority of hostile people who would condemn him and convict him and crucify him. Philippians 2.8 says this. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Obedient. Submissive. He allowed it to happen. That submissiveness draws me. It it attracts me to him that my God would do that for me. Seeing how he came to this earth to save us. The humble, submissive approach that he took to this. You and I ought to be compelled. Watching that. We ought to be compelled to put ourselves under the loving authority of our God. We ought to model what we see in Jesus Christ. It's going to take humility. It takes every one of us. You know, really... To be captivated by Jesus Christ. We just need to be a lot less captivated with ourselves. And I'm afraid we're really captivated by ourselves. It's going to take humility. James 4, 6, and 7. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In every respect, Jesus Christ is captivating. What else could possibly grip you or appeal to you? What else could possibly captivate you like Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. God, our Father, hear our prayer. I pray on behalf of all of those who whose attention is fixed on you right now. On behalf of all of those who are drawn to you, who desperately, Father, want more of you. 
I pray, God, that you would help us to repent of those things that have captivated us this week. Things that are not of your kingdom, things that might even be good gifts that you gave us, but, God, we've paid too much attention to the gift and not the giver. So, God, I pray that we would be captivated by you, that you would capture our heart, capture our attention. Father, that you would fill us with good things from you, that we would know your glory in our own lives, that we would know your strength, your power, your comfort, your care, your wisdom. God, we would have all that you offer us simply because we gave you our full attention our undivided attention. Father, I pray for those in the room who are not yet following you. I pray that they would wrestle that down today. And God, before this day is out, with you in pursuit of them, they would bend their knee, they would surrender themselves, and they would become followers of Jesus Christ their lives for the first time captivated by who you are. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.